Welcome to Climate Insiders, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of Europe's climate tech revolution, brought to you by Clementum Capital. I'm Johan Bernot, a general partner at Clementum, and I'll be your host. In each episode, I'll have one of Europe's top founders and investors, and we will try to understand how they think about climate, what has led to their success, and what are the best insights they can share with you to accelerate your climate journey. There will be a lot of terrific guests on this show, and we won't shy away from spikes, secrets, and contrarian views. To make sure you don't miss out on any episode and access all the insights, you can subscribe at climateinsiders.co. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Climate Insiders. On today's show, we are receiving an unusual guest. It's not often that we get the limited partner perspective publicly, so it's with great honor that I'm receiving Lars Nordahl Jensen, the Director of Early Stage and Fund of Funds Investments at Vex Fonden, the Danish Growth Fund. Since 1992, the Danish Growth Fund has financed more than 5,400 Danish companies with a total commitment of more than 15 billion DKK, that's about 2 billion euros. The Danish Growth Fund invests equity. They provide loans and guarantees for small and medium-sized enterprises throughout Denmark and Europe. Lars has been with Vex Fonden for more than 10 years now, occupying multiple roles. This episode might get a little technical for those not working in venture capital or not familiar with old terms, but super interesting for all funds already established, the ones not or fundraising or anyone that is deeply in the venture capital trenches. It will be my job to extract as much insight from this conversation as possible to provide value to you all. I'm excited Lars accepted to come on this show. And as a quick disclaimer, Vex Fonden is one of the anchor LPs of Climentum Capital. Without any further ado, let's go. Lars, welcome to Climate Insider. Thank you, Juan. A pleasure. So now that I managed to corner you on a podcast, just you and me, you can no longer pull out. <laughs> I'm here. And I'm I won't go easy. <laughs> Thank you. I won't go easy on you. <laughs> so just to, key, to, to lay the ground for this conversation, uh, we often hear that the capital stack is a giant pyramid. Right. So at the bottom of the pyramid, if you will, the entrepreneurs report to the VCs, then the VCs report to the LPs or the fund of funds. And then some of those fund of funds report to the government funds like VEX Funden. So you technically sit at the top of this pyramid. Is that how you feel? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, to be quite honest. No, it doesn't. This is not how it feels. So uh, the reason why I wake up every morning and do my work is, is actually, and it sounds, perhaps it sounds a bit sort of wish-washy, but it's because of the companies, right? Uh, this is what drives me and this is what interesting. So in particular, I'm an LP and I'm acting as an LP in funds and doing fund investments. So this is the way I do it. But actually, it feels the other way around uh, in a sense that uh, we should at least try to be focused on what's the main asset here. And that's the uh, that's the companies. The companies, the entrepreneurs. And so your concerns is to make sure that the state of Denmark fuels innovation and then you're really as a, as a main actor here in the Danish ecosystem could you quickly describe how the, the a sovereign fund or a government fund function where do you yeah. get your money from yeah. and who yeah. do you report to yeah for sure so our government fund vex fund the Danish growth fund was established back in 1992 so government decided to to infuse an amount of capital into a fund it's an evergreen fund so any profits we do will be reinvested under the same purpose Basically, evergreen fund. Inside that evergreen fund, we are investing on our double mandate strategy. One is financial returns, 
Two is creating a financial capacity ecosystem, if you will, around the entrepreneurs in, in our local ecosystem. If we are very good at this, we can get both and we'll reinvest all the way under the same purpose. So we report to our board. So we do not report to any politicians or administrators, anyone in the administration. They oversee our activity, but we have an autonomous board. I see. And it's also one of the specificities of European ecosystem, right? We have historically relied a lot on government funding. In your opinion, is the EU VC industry high on, on soft money, grants, government involvement, and this uh, sort of certification effect of approving so that the rest of the private, private capital market can then step in? In a way, yes. Okay, so here's a distinction for us for this conversation, right? I think you need to distinguish between non-dilutive capital and capital you invest for returns, right? So yes, the EU VC industry is high on non-dilutive capital, and they should be. Why is that? Well, I strongly <laughs> believe, and every I think everyone would agree, when at least when we have finalized this conversation, that you need someone to de-risk the enormous amount of R&D spending in universities and other places that can actually bring de-risk those technologies to bring them to the market. That's what I call a non-dilutive capital grant scheme, right? Every European country has one, the US as well. You need to have grants, cost coverage, subsidies, etc., to bring technologies to the market. Very important. This is not the same. Uh, and this is not what we do in our fund. What we do is we invest in funds that invest in companies and invest in funds on market basis. That's something else. So yes, the EU is high on soft money and grants, and they should be. Whether or not they are high on investments from government-backed commercial entities as myself, I think no. But for sure, we are a very important investor in the ecosystem. In Europe, my figure says that 30% of all LP cap tables are from public sources, sovereign rent wealth funds, sovereign investors as myself, 30%. 30%. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, I don't know if you have those stats off the top of your head in the US or in Asia, my take is probably less. Yes, I would argue that non-dilutive capital, we are on the same levels everywhere, right? The more, the better, I would argue. And I would also argue, and I don't have the stats, that Asia is perhaps on par with us and US is low when we look at investment capital. Right? Um, okay. we, so, sort of, just for, for sort of fun wording here, right? We, we speak of soft and hard money, right? Soft money, very important. Hard money, also very important. Soft money, that's the one you give in grants and cost coverage yeah. all over Europe. Right. So now on the understanding from your take is that the soft money, the non-dilutive funding is necessary. It's the seeding, it's the de-risking that any ecosystem needs, you know, in Africa, in the US, everywhere, particularly in the climate, and we'll get to it. Uh, but on the more commercial side, there's still a bit of a dependency, right? EU needs to reduce its dependency on government funds. How do we do this? I think... So here's a provocative answer, right? By creating better results, basically. So the VC industry in Europe has been uh, historically subpar the US investors, right? And as long as that's the case, all private investors, including sovereign investors looking for a risk-adjusted return, return will be reluctant to go into the asset class. So historically, one of the explanations of this high ratio is performance, to be very sort of clear. Luckily, this has changed, right? So Perhaps if you look at the 90s, very bad performance in Europe uh, compared to the US, then zeros and onwards catching up. And last 10 years 
on par and even above. I think uh, go to Cambridge Associates, go to Prequint, go to all these data sources, and we could have huge discussions on whether or not the EU and US is on par when it happened. In broad numbers here, we are beyond catching up in Europe. This means that private investors will be happier on the asset class, uh, having proven itself uh, through at least three decades. Same tendency in the US, started off as something for public investors and then transferred into something for private and public and perhaps ends off being only private, right? But you, know, you have to... Very important note. So behind these sort of average numbers, right, mm-hmm. you have a large variance, right? So you have the top performing VC funds performing very well, but you have to be very selective because the rest of the quartile, I'm talking about top quartile, are actually doing mixed and badly, right? So you have to be very selective, very selective. But the broad tendency is clear. We are catching up performance-wise. We're catching up. Uh, another element, and this is where I, I want I want hopefully to uh, derive as much objective value here as possible, government funds are also notorious for taking a very long time to make decisions. And we often hear, we as government funds have to be extra careful of what we do with the contributor's money, la la la. The fact is, uh, if we run some analysis, it probably takes a lot longer for government funds to deploy money than pure private players. So how could government funds, understanding that they need to tap into the top quartile because it's performance driven. But how could government funds compress the time it takes to deploy capital into funds? Is it through easier processes? Is it through more resources, uh, better incentives, meaning you know attracting really top talent to work for government funds? Or is it just a mindset change? You know, I, I think first of all, everybody working with investments knows that sort of paradox, right? You wanna be sure, you wanna know your risk. And yet mm-hmm. you want to be fast on signing the transaction, right? Because it's, it's a parameter of, of a competition, right? What I'm admitting here is that we can certainly be better at that in, in our institution, right? Faster, more simple, to the point, transparent. Yes, we can. But, and here's my point, and I think it's a very important point. One of the value adds we bring to our GPs is actually that, you mentioned it, right? The certification effect. So when we are extra thorough, we are actually sort of, expanding our value towards the GP. So if I invest in a fund, said in all humility here, other investors know that this has been very thorough, right? I would almost say hardcore due diligence, right? And this is part of our value add package. And, and, and we want to stay that way. We want to stay that way. You almost have the capacity that others don't have in terms of resources. You almost can do it at, at a loss when a private fund might not be able to allocate five, 10 people over two to three months going so uh, at such a level of granularity. No, I think, I think if you compare through other sort of also commercial fund of funds, we are a, at a comparable resource level. We are, we are. I know. What we want to insist on is that if we sign a, a LPA, it's with best teams, right? And most diligent teams. And secondly, and this is, this is, I think this is also quite important. This is not a, so if you commit funds to a GP structure, you commit them for 10 years plus, right? And the legal structure of certain LPA is actually of a nature that it's almost impossible to get out of a bad manager. Almost. I'm a bit biased here, but almost. This means that you know you need to know who you are you're getting married to, right? So this is not sort of one night standing. <laughs> it, it's it, it's certainly a, a, a flirt, but when you sign the documents, it's a it's a long term marriage, right? But that being said, Johan, I know uh, time is a is a fact and efficiency for all of us, and we need to be fast, and we need to be fast also. Yeah. Another perspective would be to consider 
the the other side, right, the flip side, which is uh, could it be desirable to stretch it so that it acts as a market regulator? So it sets a barrier to entry so high that it's so much harder for new generation, uh, you know, fund managers to enter. I would like to to take, get your take on this. Is it good that it takes so long because it just regulates markets? Or on the contrary, especially facing climate, and that will be a good segue there. We need more fund managers because we need more capital to be deployed in the ecosystem. I would make this argument, right? And then you can count on me. So one out of five invested LP money into GPs are given to first-time funds. Of those first-time funds, and that's especially that's important and relevant within climate, right? And mm-hmm. the LP basis of those funds are proportionately higher represented from sovereign wealth funds or government. Uh, institutions. So we do have a risk appetite that's higher compared to uh, other private investors here on first-time funds. And given that, it's so much more important that you set a certain threshold. Because what we want that might not interest private uh, investors that much is also a market dynamic, right? We want new funds to evolve as a sovereign fund, and we want dynamism and competition in the market, right? And if that bar is set too low, the, the market will perhaps take damage from it, right? So that's another right. reason for being valid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's you, you, valid. It seems like you buy, you, you buy that argument. <laughs> I'm neutral here. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> but I, I, I think it's a fair argument. There's another element to it is is the what we see regularly, quotas. Government funds have the tendency to set quotas and national KPIs, particularly true for climate VC funds. For example, uh, you know, Finland will tend to have a, cert- a certain quota for Finnish fund managers, Denmark for Danish fund managers, Germany, et cetera, et cetera. Each country is kind of setting their own targets. Is that a good or a bad thing? Or should we consider Europe as a whole and drop those national KPIs? I think it's a bad thing. So there's a bit of a confusion here on means and ends, right? So everybody wants ecosystem, capacity building, and, and, and kick-ass returns, right? So how do you come to that end? The mean quota is the wrong one, I think. What some sovereign funds do, and, and we do that as well, and I find that the most sort of durable strategy is making it more attractive for the funds we invest in to invest in our local ecosystem by being a partner that show them deal flow co-invest with them instead of setting quotas. And here's the problem with quotas, right? Quotas uh, can give you subpar, uh, subpar portfolios, right? So in the case you were doing, right, one Finnish quota, one German, one one Danish one, and then you you, you need to fulfill them all, and then you need to then you make the wrong decisions commercially, right, uh, and intellectually. That's pretty bad. And I, I see a tendency also on follow-on capacity, right? So you can be in a, in a specific situation where you need to choose between two follow-on investment, and that's a very difficult decision in itself. You know that as a GDP, right? If you, on top of that decision, have a quota fulfillment, the risk of eating up the returns are high, right? So you should do that. I understand the reasons why people are doing, but I think it's basically a matter of confusing ends and means. It's a bad mean instrument because the end, everybody agrees on the end. I hope I they will. I want to believe you. Yeah, but I hope <laughs> someone will forgive me out there for saying that because it is a tendency to do that. I think it's a wrong, it's a wrong instrument. Well, it's great to hear it from you. Uh, the master of all tendencies at the European level, right? We have structured in such a way that, it, for example, the European Investment Fund is probably the master of setting quotas and certain criteria. Uh, so you're almost calling of other government funds to reconsider this yeah. and drop them and to be a bit more performance driven. But I think they are, actually. I think they are. So EIF, for instance, we, we need to credit the guys at the EIF every day. Seriously, they are doing exactly what we talked about 
uh, a few minutes ago, right? They are investing under the same double purpose and they are doing it in a very intelligent way, but both looking at returns and also looking at the ecosystem as such. Then they are setting standards and that's that's also important. You could also, uh, you could always argue which standards and when, and I, I guess that's the discussion mm-hmm. we are having, but it's important to stress, I think, that it's a, it's a quite important role here. It's a quite important uh-huh. role. And I'm not trying to escape my own point because I strongly believe that quotas are wrong. They're wrong. But in the general picture, they're doing a tremendous job. Yeah, no, I, do, I, I, I couldn't agree more on, on the important role they have to play. There is the opposite uh, side, right? So how, what is too much here? Is there a fear that sovereign funds might crowd out the market and prevent the emergence of commercial fund of funds? This is a regular conversation I'm having, you know, behind uh, you know closed doors because no one is really uh, vocal about it. But when we hear, for example, KFW or other government funds structuring billion euro uh, fund of funds for a particular vertical, that essentially eliminates all the potential fund of funds and private LPs that would struggle to even uh, raise a, a 200 or a 500 uh, million vehicle. Any particular opinion here? Yeah, I, I disagree. I completely disagree uh, on on this. So if you look at our sort of, what are the sort of general stakes we take in a particular fund, right? So usually we would be not above 25%, and that would be rather rare. Average is much lower. In some cases, we have 5% of a cap table. So what we bring to that cap table is is the effects we, we talked about, right? Certification, risk willingness, also setting standards, perhaps. So how does the rest of the cap table look like, right? So that's between 95% and 75%. That consists of private investors wanting almost the same, bringing other stuff to the cap table, right? LPs. But in my view, this is sort of almost a structured syndication sort of effect, right? So you have sovereign funds perhaps backing first closing, and then you have the private funds coming afterwards, looking at that certification effect. I would go as far, you want to actually say crowding in. (laughs) And the reason why I'm, I'm stressing that is... Look at this in historical perspective. There were no risk-willing investors in the European venture capital, on the venture capital side, and none. So this has changed over decades, right? And now we have more. As long as this is the situation, I would talk about crowding in. I strongly believe that. And I, and I cannot see the argument for the opposite, actually. That's a fair point of view. So you're saying that as long as they play the certification effect where they step projects that would not be stamped otherwise and giving them the other entry ticket so they can then go out to raise some private capital but 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 on on one very important sort of assumption that you invest invest alongside the market so speaking Mm -hmm. of quotas again right so do this on a commercial basis with the knowledge base that private investors have have the experience the legal analysis uh, etc but invest with the market, not against it. Yeah, that's that's a very good point. You're pushing this to the to to the extreme, and we know that not all sovereign funds are created equal. Some are a bit smarter than others, and some have more history. Some uh, have higher performance. So, since you're not incentivized the same way as a, a private, you know, pool of capital is, you, for example, most people working for those organizations don't have carry. Uh, so they're more incentivized to help accelerate the market. Should sovereign funds collaborate more across Europe on processes, on learnings, on DDs to shorten deployment timelines? Essentially, Vexfondan being a bit smarter than others, maybe. Uh, should you educate the market and to think like you and help on processes that you've that have helped you get to this level of performance? I think 
So collaboration can always be better, right? But uh, one of the things <laughs> we have in, in, enjoyed the most is sort of, for instance, doing mutual DD with other like-minded LPs. It doesn't matter whether or not they're public or private. There you learn something, right? You learn something. You see how the other people work, and that can sort of, sort of, essentially, sort of bring down process time. But I also think that's just sort of this is how the market should work. Also, on the LP side, it somehow needs to be rather cumbersome to convince somebody to put a 20 million euro ticket on your cap table compared to perhaps other sort of asset classes, right? It should be rather cumbersome, but of course. Of course, we should collaborate. And are we doing it enough? No, I don't think so. But I, I think actually the EIF is doing a, a tremendous work on that note, right? Because they have the entire sort of European outlook in their sort of uh, way of working. And, and their standards are being trickled down to the local economy. So that's good work. But yes, of course, we should collaborate more. And there are many ways. Uh, I think uh, this is, I guess, a, a thread to be open now on, on areas of collaboration. I wanted to switch gear a little bit and talk about how government funds, sovereign funds could um, help increase diversity amongst fund managers, so more female partners, but also more minority uh, founders. I would love to take your, get your take on it. So uh, one way I can think of this is to reduce requirements on GP commitment, for example. You know, uh, we know that in the US versus the EU, we're still not on par on what the US LPs expect from uh, first-time fund managers as we do here in Europe. Uh, do you think, for example, you know, we should index GP commitment on available net worth versus hardcore, you know, percentage number. Um, l- let me g- give you an example yeah, for, yeah. for folks listening, may not be straightforward, but for example, if I am a, a you know, minority fund manager and I have an excellent background and I have all the credit credentials to be a fund manager, but I only have 100K euro available in net worth, 10% of this would only be 10,000 euros. Should this be enough as a GP commit versus the 2% of a total, let's say, 50 million euro, which would be a million euros to invest, impossible to pull out, immediate, you know, barrier to entry for 90% of folks out there. Any thought? Okay, so, so so here's actually one of the things that you could do as a sovereign fund, right? You could decide to set standards that are different from the market standards. So this is another reason for us being in the market, right? I think we should set such standards and on diversity. I think it's quite important. And I think being very specific on GP commitment, I would take the stance that it is always relatively to the economic capacity of the GP, always. And if if you are not sort of seeing it in relative terms here, right, it, you would have a hard time getting your incentives in, uh, right and you would have a hard time funding first-time teams, right? So you would create a barrier, a financial barrier that's actually quite unhealthy, I would argue, for the industry itself. That being said, I'm also a strong believer of second time, third time, no, third time plus teams putting a lot of skin in the game. That's what I would expect as an investor. So so the answer is actually both here. Two percent is, is that's a good measure. That's a good measure, but you need to see every deal by itself, right? And you don't want to you don't want to exclude people per se, coming back to uh, dynamism in the market, right? And also diversity. You need to be flexible on that. And we are, we are. So 2% for second, third time fund managers, because they have a bit more, you know, a yeah. room, uh, I guess, or, uh, you know, comfort, uh, but yeah. uh, for lowering the barrier for first time managers, especially. Yeah. I, I would argue, I would argue so. And again, argument being, otherwise you would block certain people and uh-huh. certain people bringing competitiveness, new ideas, etc., to the market. Great. Signal sent out to other sovereign funds. <laughs> yeah, we all, it's negotiations before having them. Yeah. 
<laughs> sure. <laughs> Another so good um, good moment to switch to the climate tech ecosystem. For example, we often hear, especially in 2022, that there's too much capital invested in the space. It's overhyped. So on one front, we know that we need hundreds of billions to be poured on on you know green and sustainable innovation. But on the other side, people argue it's uh, maybe gone too far. Any any particular opinion there? No, I think we. Uh, so you could always argue how, how much of the sort of overall purpose are you on to here? I think we have a tremendous market opportunity here, uh, sort of financially. So it's it's actually one of the sort of you have you have climate tech and deep tech. When you ask sort of European LPs, what are they most uh, sort, sort of intrigued by? Right, it's those two usual suspects. I think. We are in a crossroads, and what we need is not. So we have investor appetite, right? What we need is, is assets on the, underneath, right? So we actually need the founders to create those companies, being for making the GPs able to invest in them, for the LPs to invest in the GPs. That's what we need. And I personally believe we should do a bit more on this, given the situation we are in. But it's a financial opportunity. It's a financial opportunity. Basically, go get it. Go get it. Go get it. So spray more, even though there's still market uncertainties. Uh, the unit economics of most verticals aren't established yet. It is still a very good moment to invest. Yes, but you know, this is extremely interesting. I think climate tech on the on the theme we are having here, right? Because we see sovereign funds and also private fuffs all over the world here with appetite, right? But you cannot. In my opinion, you cannot do intelligent investing now in climate tech without doing first-time teams. Mm-hmm. And that, that sets demands for your risk willingness, right? And then you are back at where we started, right? If some inv- investors are more willing to take risks on stuff and assets that are, might not in that plain vanilla form yet, right? For instance, very brave uh, private investors and, and mostly also sovereign funds, right? So here we are back again, right? Let's go an extra mile for bringing those teams to the market together with the GPs, right? And uh, climate tech is particular specific because on top of being a, a new generation of fund managers, it's also a new generation of fund construction. We see more and more those dual carry model where you incentivize on financial return and also impact uh, the SFDR article eight or nine. What do you think of this? Uh, does it make sense to only invest in article nine funds from now on, because that's the only guarantee of non-greenwashing the space. I can tell you what 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 we look at when we what we see when we look at an article nine fund. So this is uh, exactly as you put it. This is our way of seeing commitment, right? For sort of a double return here, uh, one on climate, one on on financial returns, right? So this is a very sort. Of, I think it's less than five percent of all European funds that has a sort of an article nine tag mm-hmm. to it, right? And for now, this is by far the best signal signal you can send as a GP to an LP. And for us, I think, in a situation where the markets are forming themselves, right, and consolidating uh, new teams, I would go for that one. For how long will that be sort of a competitive advantage for for a very short time, I think. Uh, but for now, it is. And it's it's also, and I think you agree on this, it's, it's actually a proof point of when regulations can actually move markets sort of for more transparency, more standards, more regular standards, etc. I think it's a, it's a very positive. Uh, so, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're bringing a very fair point. It, when we started Climentum, um, you know, two years ago, we thought Article 9, it was not even, um, you know, a, a, a standard. It was not fully baked or crystallized yet. It was just a concept, not fully understood. And I would argue that it's still not fully understood yet. No, it's not. Uh, but we didn't think that it was going to be adopted so quickly. And on the other side now, we're seeing more and more uh, studies showing that most of the green funds 
claiming to be green funds out there, you know, still deploy most of their capital or a good chunk of it in oil and gas. Uh, so there's a ton of greenwashing. And and this is damaging for the environment uh, as much as it is environment in both terms, right? Uh, the climate, but also the ecosystem, you know, of funds in Europe. Anything that you do as sovereign funds, because you have a higher level of transparency to everyone investing in you that others should implement so that they don't get in the trap of investing in something that is green, but in the end, very black and very dirty. Hmm. I think this will be in half answer, half answer. So excuse me for that, but that's all I got. I think the generalist funds out there in the market and all the first time teams forming themselves now, they need to bring themselves from sort of an understanding where reporting of climate effects are their pain point to a point where it's the actual toolbox presented to the companies that's the value add here, right? So we are, as investors, we are beyond that point of reporting now. When we look at GP teams, we ask, we do reference calls, right? Everybody does that. So we ask the companies, was that LCA analysis you were being handed out by your GP, was that, was that valuable for you? Did they have the technical knowledge or could they bring it to the table? So that that would be my half answer. So so enough about reporting, right? It's not fixed yet, but it will be fixable. So next level will be toolbox, right? If you are Article 9, you have to have a strong toolbox for the companies themselves. LCA, for, for those listening that are not familiar, it's a life cycle uh, you know, analysis. I would argue with you, and something that we didn't expect as well, is the value that it brings when you're positioning yourself on deals. You can actually win deals as a fund, uh, you know, meaning founders picking you over a more generalist fund that is not value-oriented because you're Article 9 and because you have the capacity to do a full life cycle analysis. You help them uh, you know, analyze their scope 1, scope 2, and scope 3 emissions and really stamp them as a very healthy and uh, positively impactful company. And founders uh, value that enormously, more and more. So I see that you know, again, as a competitive advantage today to win deals, as the Article 9 stamp just uh, spreads and becomes the norm, we hope uh, it will. Uh, it will become less. So you will need more and more specialization. And then you talked about dual carry. You did. Yes. Dual carry is your, this is the double skin in the game, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Both for sovereign funds as, as it is for founders. I, so a tendency we are seeing in the market, and I, I wanted to share with you, with you, Johan, because I think it's so, it's interesting and it's, it's compelling here, right? So we see, so criticism of VC industry has been sort of huge upside on a 80-20 sort of carry structure, right? So the models we see now is sort of, and you see them as well, uh, is models where the carry you're being paid out as a GP is, is a function of not only your financial returns, but also the effects you do on the climate, right? And this is a very tricky question. Should we have such models in the market, right? We have discussed this very, at least I think, thoroughly in, in our end. And we a bit sort of, we have mixed feelings about this, right? Because in ideally, we see a financial opportunity where climate meets technology, right? And in that, if that's your argument, you shouldn't need any sort of extra financial KPIs, right? Because if you invest in the intersection between those two, financial returns will tell you the story, right? You will have both. So in a sense, when you do dual carry models, you are hedging against the situation where yeah, there's actually a trade-off between the two. So that's that's sort of a logical sort of, that follows, right? So that's a reason for being skeptical on dual carry models. But we decided to be more flexible that logic tells us here, because it might be a model that could prevail. And for f- and it's also about 
sending signals, right? So so we are on an explorative sort of basis on dual carry schemes here, but it begs a lot of sort of technical questions. Who is to validate the KPIs? Mm-hmm. Am I, as an investor, I do not have the knowledge. I invest in funds because they have knowledge I do not have. So external review, uh, and that perhaps brings uh, sort of us back to the point where reporting is actually quite uh, important, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, even though we made a two-box point before. Yeah. Most funds that are dual carry model, to my knowledge, have some kind of auditor when they divest their funds. So at the end of the fund, they will probably require a big auditor to come in and analyze all the, the details, which is quite heavy, which means that you probably need to be a certain critical size, you know, let's say 100 million euro assets under management to be able to be fully Article 9 and fully compliant and then have a dual carry model, which is also an, an extra, you know, barrier to entry. But necessary as uh, the space uh, evolves. Uh, last, I would like to jump into our rapid fire round. So the concept, <laughs> I give you two options. So, uh, you know, questions with two options and you respond with your preferred option succinctly. Yeah. Are you ready? No. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. First question, uh, faster spray and pray versus uh, slower targeted investments. So what's better not for you, Vex Funding, but better for the climate transition? So again, you just deploy in as many fund managers as possible, or you continue being very specific and targeted? Specific and targeted. Why? Ah, <laughs> oh, okay. I have to argue. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, no, I think it's, it's um, first-time funds setting the standards, raising the barrier from below. Very important. Therefore, selective and targeted. Therefore. Okay. Performance first. I think we got the, the thread line here. The second question is generalist funds. Think uh, generalist climate versus specialized, right? Specialist fund. What has performed best in VEX fund in history? Of course, you don't have the history on climate, but in, in general. Yeah. Uh, we don't know yet in our portfolio. I wouldn't have the data now to back it, but U- uh, US data suggests that generalist funds are doing better than thematic ones. We are investing on a assumption that we need both okay it's just so skewed right the power law is just so severe in venture capital that a handful of funds which tend to be the ones attracting the best deals return you know vastly uh, more than the rest of the of the group but there's definitely a window now for thematic climate fund right? a window market opportunity lp demand yes. uh, uh, is high right and now the, the the final question is do we need bigger funds or do we need more specialist funds? So what does Europe need to accelerate the climate transition? Those enormous several billions assets under management or a long tail of 100 million funds? Bigger funds. Bigger funds. And we, and we will probably not have that for the next cycle here for several reasons. And because climate tech hasn't proven itself yet in Europe. But yeah, we need that. And how do we make it happen? Do we need more government uh, funding piling up or just uh, extending, make, writing enormous checks? Or do we need just a private market to... Yeah, pile up both. But on climate tech, we have the same challenge we originally had with tech in general, right? So if we look at the performance of the climate tech funds going backwards, right, it's not impressive. So you have the same sort of conundrum here, right? Everybody wants to invest in it, but performance, historic performance is not there because nobody did it, right? And the people that did it 15 years ago uh, lost money, including our, ourselves uh, on climate tech. So performance, 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 then uh, both sovereign funds and private investors will come, right? Wow. Well, I think we definitely heard your strong message on performance. Thanks so much, Lars. This has flown by. It was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. Me too. And to all of you, thanks for listening again. Don't forget to subscribe to hear more great investors or LPs. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to another episode of Climate Insiders, the leading climate tech podcast in Europe. If you've enjoyed this, 
be sure to subscribe at climateinsiders.co. Climate Insiders is brought to you by Clementum Capital, a late C to Series A Climate Tech VC. To learn more by Clementum Capital, apply for funding or become an LP, visit clementum.com.